Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Revelation 3, 20 through 22. So when uh, Tristy and I were dating and she was irresistibly falling in love with me, uh, we were actually apart for a while. I was in College Station. She was in Colorado. She was working for, uh, for crew, and she was at a conference and then taking some, some courses. And so we were separated for, for quite a, a long period of time. And uh, I know this is really going to be hard for you to imagine, but this is when cell phones just came out, right? So I had a cell phone. She did not own a cell phone, but I had a cell phone. And uh, I had to pay for every minute, right? So you didn't have this unlimited talk and unlimited text. I had to pay for every minute. It was really, really expensive. So... We didn't talk on the phone much. And when we did talk on the phone, we talked on a, a landline. Now, if you're not familiar with a landline, okay, there's a phone, like a physical phone, and it plugs into a wire into the wall, right? And it's not, it's not Wi-Fi, and it's not cellular, and it's not Bluetooth. It's like a physical line. But when we called on a landline, also I had to pay for every minute, right? I would buy calling cards, and I paid for every minute. And I was poor, and she was poor. We didn't have much money, so we didn't talk much on the phone. Instead, we wrote letters. Now, if you're not familiar with letters, okay, <laughs> what you do is you take your pen and you dip it in a bowl of ink, right? <laughs> and then you start scratching on a piece of leather. And, you know, and so we took a lot of time and thought writing these letters. And then when, once we received them, we would read them over and over again. And we would save those letters, still have those letters that we exchanged way back when, because that was our only form of communication. Now, when we hit Revelation chapter 2, we're looking at letters that are from Jesus. Uh, you know, all of the Bible is inspired. God breathed out through human authors and, and gave us his scripture. But in Revelation 2 and 3, we have letters that are actually written by Jesus. Jesus dictated to John specific letters for specific churches, seven uh, unique letters to seven unique churches in Asia Minor. Now, why these specific churches in Asia Minor? You're going to have to advance slides for me, apparently. There we go. Okay, why these seven? Uh, you'll notice in this region, Asia, Asia Minor, that's the region of uh, modern-day Turkey. There were churches all around. Right in that very vicinity, there was the church of Colossae, and then you had uh, Philippians, and you had Thessalonica. You had all of these cities all around. Why these seven? Well, uh, I think seven representing the number of, of fullness or completion. John chose these seven in this particular region because they represent the struggles and the challenges that the church was facing in that day. These are representative. They're also representative, I would argue, of the struggles and the challenges that the church faces today. And as I read through these letters and Jesus is speaking to the churches and he's communicating his love to the churches, the thought crossed my mind. I thought, what would Jesus say if he was writing a letter to our church? What would Jesus say if he was writing a letter to you personally this morning? Now, to put these letters in context, I want us to back up just a little bit. I want you to read with me in Revelation chapter 1 and verse 19. Jesus says, 
to John. He says, therefore, write the things which you have seen and the things which are and the things which will take place after these things. So if we put ourselves back in the context of the book of Revelation, we're just beginning our study. I think chapter 1, verse 19 gives us an outline of what John is supposed to do with the entire book. So the things which you have seen, well, that's chapter 1. John had a vision of Jesus. The things which are, those are the letters to the seven churches that existed in John's day. And then the things which will take place after these things, that's chapters 4 through 22. This is, this is future. This is future for the church. And if you missed our study about two weeks ago, I gave you kind of a, a broad overview of all of end times. And the reason I did that is because I like charts. So we talked about all of end times. And if you missed that sermon, I'd encourage you to go back because it's going to give you context for the whole book of Revelation. We are now in the church age. When John wrote these letters to these churches, they were in the church age. They were in the beginning of the church age. I don't know. Are we in the middle or are we in the end of the church age? I don't know. But the church was waiting, I believe, for the rapture. That is for Jesus to, to, to bring believers, to catch them out, to cause them to, to leave this earth and to meet him in the air. The church was waiting for that moment. I personally think that that rapture happens before the tribulation, so a pre-tribulation rapture. Tribulation is that seven-year period that we're going to begin to study in just a, a couple of weeks. Uh, seven-year period of, of real difficulty on the earth. The reason that I think that the rapture occurs before the tribulation, wide variety of reasons, but one of the things you'll notice as we go through the book of Revelation is that uh, the church is mentioned about 20 or more times in chapters 1 through 3, and then the church is not mentioned at all until the final paragraph of the book of Revelation. You'll notice also if you turn over to chapter 3 and verse 10, one of the promises made to one of the churches in Philadelphia, Jesus says, I will also keep you from the hour of testing, that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to those who dwell on the earth. So I think that the next thing that the church was waiting for then and the church is waiting for now is the rapture. And it was something that they really longed for because they were suffering. But the church was under an incredible pressure and persecution and tribulation. And in that context, Jesus spoke to the church. So I want us to look at six things that Jesus says to the church. Let's begin by reading in chapter 2 and verse 1. Revelation chapter 2 and verse 1. This is Jesus speaking. He says, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not, and you have found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore remember, therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Yes, yet I do have this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God." So one of the things you're going to notice as we read through these seven letters, and we're going to try and survey all seven this morning, is that there's a, there's a pattern. There's a, typically a, a commendation. Here's something that you're doing well. There's typically a, a rebuke 
and a warning, and then there is a promise that God gives through Jesus to each of these churches, and it's a unique promise. The other thing that's really interesting is that Jesus introduces himself to each church in a unique way. So let's look at each of these introductions. Chapter 2, verse 1, Jesus says, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Verse 8, To the angel of the church of Smyrna write, the first and the last who is dead and has come to life says this. Verse 12, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, right? The one who has the sharp two-edged sword says this. Verse 18, to the angel of the church of Thyatira, right? The son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze says this. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel in the church of Sardis, right? He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this. Verse 7, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one shuts, who shuts and no one opens, says this. Verse 14, to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful, true witness, the originator of creation, which God has given, says this. Now, what do you notice about each of those introductions? Well, it's, it's language that's borrowed from John's description. So remember, in John chapter 1, John has this vision of the risen, glorified Jesus. It's such an overwhelming vision that he falls at Jesus' feet like a dead man. And as he's describing him, he uses exactly the same, same language. So Jesus borrows the language from John. So what Jesus is saying is, the resurrected, glorified Jesus that John saw, that's me. The one who's sovereign over all of the universe, who created all things, who will rule rule over all things, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, that's me. And where is Jesus? He says, I am walking amongst the lampstands. That is, I am present with the church. I am present with you. Remarkable as it may be, this morning, Jesus is present with us, and his intention is to speak a word that we would hear that would change our lives. Now, the church was really suffering in the first century. And I know there are some of you who are really suffering, and I want to ask you the question, when, when you're really struggling and suffering, what's, what's your temptation? Temptation, I think, for me, anyway, is I say to myself, hey, Jesus, I'm still here. Do you still see me? Are you still there? Have you, have you abandoned me? Remember what David said in Psalm chapter 22 when he was struggling? It's the first verse. This is how he begins the psalm. He says, my God, my God, have you forsaken me? Anyone else ever say that? What Jesus did, remember when Jesus was suffering on the cross. My God, my God, have you forsaken me? God, have you abandoned me? Which is really interesting because one of the dominant themes throughout all of Scripture is that God is present with us and he never leaves us. But when we're struggling, we're suffering, we wonder, God, have you left us? But if you look back all the way to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, remember God creates uh, the heavens and the earth. He creates, creates the garden. He puts Adam and Eve in it. And, and he, he, he says, you know what? I've done my, my job. Now I'm out. You guys figure it out. Right? Is that what Jesus said? God says? No, he says, let me walk with you in the cool of the day. Adam, let's take a walk. Eve, let's take a walk. Let's talk. Let's enjoy one another. Let me give you instructions for the day. I'm with you. I'm with you. In fact, there's that repeated refrain throughout the scripture. Um, 
I will be your God and you will be my people and I will dwell among you and I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. In fact, the book of Revelation toward the end wraps up like this. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, behold, the tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them and they shall be his people and God himself will be among them and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will no longer be any death. There will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. And so David, just one psalm later, he would say, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord is, the Lord is walking with me. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, his rod and his staff, they come from me. That is, I know the Lord will not promise to rescue me out of every trouble and trial and tribulation, but I know that he'll walk with me and he won't abandon me. Ever. I heard it said one time, uh, you're either uh, entering into a trial, coming out of a trial, right, or you're in a trial right now, right? And so I don't know where you are, whether you are about to enter in or you're exiting or you're right in the middle of it right now, but maybe the word that you need to hear from Jesus is, I'm the one who walks among the lampstands. I am with you, and I will never leave you or forsake you. Jesus says, I am with you. Jesus says, I see your faithfulness. Chapter 2, verse 2. I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles and they are not. You have found them to be false and you have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. I see you. I see your faithfulness. We all like to be seen, don't we? We want to be, we want to be acknowledged. We want our labor and our effort and our endurance, we want it to be acknowledged. We want our contribution to be acknowledged. We want to be seen. Uh, you know, around our house, uh, once in a while, um, I, I do things and I want to be seen, right? So once in a while, I, I clean the kitchen. And, you know, I'm going to acknowledge, Tristy does it like 98% of the time, but the 2% when I clean the kitchen, kind of like, hey, babe. <laughs> mm, what do you think? You know, I mean, I, kinda, I, I, I admit it. In my heart, I do. I just think, all right, you know. And she is 100% within her rights to say, hey, that's awesome, but I do it 98% of the time, right? She could say that. It would be a completely valid response. I heard the clapping back there. That was not my wife. She's not here yet. But it could have been, and it would have been okay. But she doesn't. Instead, she goes, oh, man, thank you, hon. I so appreciate your, you know, your contribution to, you know, and I get a hug and everything. And I go, you know, and honestly, that motivates me to do it 3% of the time. I didn't motivate just to step up. Right? We want to be acknowledged. And Jesus is saying, I see you, church. I see that it's a struggle, and I see that you are persevering. Because they were suffering. Right? Again, context here is probably uh, late first century, the reign of Domitian. And he persecuted the church. He, he persecuted his friends. He persecuted his family. He certainly persecuted Christians. They were they, they would have waves of persecution where they would lose their property or they would lose their freedom and be in prison. Some of them would even lose their lives. They struggled, and the early Jewish Christians suffered persecution from Jews who were not following Jesus. They lost friendship, and they lost family. They lost inheritance. 
They lost the protection. Judaism did not have to do emperor worship. But when Jewish followers of Jesus were thrown out of the synagogue, they were once again not under protection. They were persecuted. They, these people were, were suffering. They were suffering. And I think it's important for us, church, once in a while to acknowledge the fact that the, the long history of the church is a history of being a, a minority and suffering, or right? being a small minority in a culture that doesn't see things like we do and is actually hostile to the name of Jesus. That's the history of the church. So what, what uh, believers in America have maybe enjoyed over the last uh, 100, 200 years is really kind of an aberration for what the church has experienced most of its life. And I realize now I think that you know, persecution is beginning to increase um, in subtle ways, but more overt ways for the church. And I would say, church, I think it's a really important time for us to just get ready. Get ready. I think we should also acknowledge that what we may suffer here is kind of junior varsity compared to what others, other believers in the, in the world suffer. Right? So I was just reading an article this week that, that uh, Afghanistan is the most dangerous place in the world to be a follower of Jesus. Again, loss of property, loss of job, loss of freedom, loss of life. Myanmar, North Korea, there are places, Saudi Arabia, all around the world where believers are suffering far more than we are. But I think it's going to increase for us. I think that that's the, the general tenor of, of what's happened to the church and I think it's important for us once in a while to just have a moment and we say, you know what, no matter what persecution that I may face now or in the future, I will remain loyal to Jesus. You can take my property, you can take my job, you can take my freedom, you can take my life, but I choose Jesus. And Jesus says, I see you, right? I acknowledge your faithfulness. Third Jesus says to the church who's struggling, do not compromise with sin. Don't compromise with sin. Confront sin. Deal with sin in your life. When Tristan and I were doing college ministry and we'd have students come in and they needed to have a confrontation with a roommate or a friend, we'd say, you know what you need to do is you need to use the rebuke sandwich. Are you guys familiar with the rebuke sandwich, right? You've got a piece of bread, some meat, and another piece of bread. And each piece of bread, that's an affirmation. That's an encouragement. The meat Man, that's where you dot their eye, right? That's the boom, you're going to tag them, right? But you got some encouragement first. So you say to your roommate, you know, you're a really, really great roommate. I really appreciate the fact you clean up your messes, and once in a while you make us really great meals. However, uh, you know, you lie to me and you steal my clothes. And so, you know, we need to deal with that in particular, but I do want to acknowledge that I really like those meals, and I know you listen to the Spirit, and you're going to figure it out, right? So you got a rebuke sandwich. That's what Jesus does. He gives them a rebuke sandwich. He says, I see your faithfulness and your toil and your perseverance, all but Laodicea. Laodicea doesn't get it. They don't get any bread. They just get the, the meat, right? They just get tagged. But every other church, there's this commendation. I see you. I acknowledge you. Now, we need to deal with the sin that's going on. And there are three areas of compromise that the church was confronting in the first century. Idolatry immorality, and indifference. Turn with me to chapter 2, verse 14. Jesus says, but I have a few things against you. Because there are some who hold to the teaching of Balaam, 
who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some who are in the same way holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So we've got a couple of references here uh, that I think it's, it's worth taking a moment to unpack. Balaam, who's Balaam? Well, Balaam was uh, an Old Testament pagan prophet, and you'll recall he didn't tell the children of Israel to stop worshiping Yahweh. He said, but you also should include the worship of Baal. Catch that? He's not saying, don't worship Yahweh, but just realize he's one among many. You should also worship Baal. And he, he pulled the children of Israel into spiritual compromise or into uh, idolatry. Now, what may be happening in this day is in a lot of these cities here in Asia Minor, there were, there were trade guilds. So, you know, you're, you're a silversmith, you're a weaver, you're a stonemason, but if you want to be a part of that guild and consequently get jobs in your craft, then you have to sacrifice to the God of that skill or that craft. And so you would participate in the, the sacrifices, and then once the, the, the food was sacrificed to that particular idol, you would sit down and share a meal. And if you didn't participate in this, you might not be able to get a job. You might not be able to, to work and provide for your family. And so Christians were tempted to make compromises spiritually, to keep worshiping Jesus, but to also worship these other gods. Now, it's hard for us when we we think about idolatry in our day because we go, ah, that just doesn't make sense because we don't make sacrifices to idols and we don't even have little idols and we can't con con conceptualize this really. But remember, uh, idols are fundamentally an issue of the heart. The idol, the physical idol is just a, it's a manifestation or a representation physically of something that's broken in our heart. So Ezekiel will talk about uh, the idols of our heart. That is the things that we begin to love alongside of or maybe more than we love Jesus. And as Tim Keller noted, idolatry happens when we take good things and make them into ultimate things. So most of our idolatry is actually good things that begin to bump up against our affection for Jesus. It may be things like um, money, wealth, and the security that comes from it, which is not a bad thing. But it begins to become an idol in the heart. It begins to, to, to grab our affections. It can be your physical health. It can be your accomplishments. It can be the praise of, of other people. It can be your career. It can be a relationship. None of these things being bad, but they become idols when they begin to become elevated and compete with. Remember, Balaam didn't say, stop worshiping Yahweh. He said, just also start worshiping Baal. And so what was happening in this day is they were beginning to make uh, spiritual compromises. And I would argue we do the same. Because only one thing can be ultimate, and Jesus says, that's what I want to be. I want, I want the, the worship of me to be ultimate. And everything else that you love in your life only makes sense and is ordered underneath me. Second, they were struggling with immorality because their spiritual compromise led to moral compromise, and moral, moral compromise often opens the door to spiritual compromise. So notice uh, what he says here, in verse 20, chapter 2, it says, But I have this against you, that you tolerate the woman Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess, and she teaches and leads my bondservants astray, so that they, that they commit acts of immorality and eat things sacrificed to idols. Now, um, 
Jezebel apparently was a real person. That probably wasn't her actual name because no one ever names their daughter Jezebel, right? I mean, if you're even thinking about it, don't. Jezebel, remember? There's, that, there's a reference here as well. Jezebel was the wife of Ahab. Jezebel was, was uh, Ahab was the king of, of Israel, of the northern kingdom. His wife Jezebel was a Jezebel, right? I mean, she's now euphemistic because she supported hundreds of prophets of Baal and hundreds of prophets of his consort, Asherah, and she led the people away from the worship of the Lord. And a part of that worship of Baal and Asherah was, was, it was sexual immorality, right? It was woven into the actual worship of Baal. So you remember uh, Baal, whose name means Lord, was seen as uh, the Lord of, of the sky and storms, and he was controlling the weather. And so what happened was, uh, in their, their concept, was every winter Baal fell asleep. So every spring what you needed to do is you needed to wake Baal up so that Baal would have sexual relations with his wife, Asherah, and so that they would send then fertility on the earth, right? Rains in the proper season and sun in the proper season. So as a part of their worship of Baal, there were temple prostitutes and people would go in and they would perform these sex acts to kind of, hey, hey, Baal, wake up. See what's going on here? I mean, it was horrifically perverse. Well, apparently that's what's, happening here as well. And, and what, what Jesus says to them is, says, you know, here's the problem. You know it's wrong, but you tolerate it. And church, my question for us is, do you tolerate Jezebel? Are you tracking with me? Do you, do you tolerate Jezebel? Because I would argue that our culture is as sexualized as any culture has ever been. It's not like cultures have never been sexualized, right? Rome was horribly sexualized and Sodom and Gomorrah. It's been true throughout the ages, but we live in a very sexualized culture. And I would argue that that, that, that tolerance of Jezebel has crept into the church. So I just want you to think for a moment, you know, and let, and let if this is a conviction point for you, great. If it's not, and you feel like you're just walking in purity, and that's, that's wonderful, but, you know, what kind of movies do you stream? What do you, what do you watch? There's some Jezebel in there. Some, there's some sexual perversion that the culture has brought in. What kind of language do you use with your friends and the jokes that you tell? Would you feel comfortable sitting with the Lord and saying that again? How, how have you made maybe just small moments of compromise. What, how do we compromise with Jezebel with um, our leaders, not calling our leaders out? Right? Because they align with us on different things, but we don't confront that. What about your friends? Are you willing to put the friendship on the line and challenge them? Or do you just tolerate it? Right? So they were struggling, I, I would argue, with something that, that really we struggle with as a church as well. Um, things that begin to compete for our affections, Jesus, um, immorality that slides in. But then also, uh, just indifference, that is going through the motions of loving and serving in Jesus, but our heart not being absolutely in it. Chapter 2, verse 4, says the church in Ephesus, but I have this against you that you have left your first love. Chapter 3, verse 1, to the angel in the church in Sardis write, he who has the seven spirits of God, the seven stars, says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name that you are alive, but you're dead. You're just going through the motions. Listen to this description 
the church in Laodicea, chapter 3, verse 15, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Be cold, be hot. What is he saying here? Well, actually, there's a really vivid uh, image that would have come to their mind. Uh, just down the road was the city of Colossae, and they had these rich, cold springs. People loved the water in Colossae. They loved to drink it. It was pure water. And then down the road, the other direction was the city of Hierapolis, and they were famous for their hot springs, and people from all over the region would come so that they could bathe in the hot springs of Hierapolis. On the other hand, Laodicea, there was a spring that was several miles distant from the city, and the Romans had built an aqueduct that would uh, flow the water to the city, but it was really clogged with minerals. So but that, by the time that the water got from the spring to the city of Laodicea, uh, there were all kinds of minerals that clogged their pipes, and it was completely lukewarm, and it was like, you know, drinking when you're out at camp and you've got, you drink your coffee, but it's made with water that smells like eggs, right? I mean, it was just gross, right? Right? Which, I mean, it's really a good metaphor here because coffee is one of the elixirs that Jesus has given us, and it's really good if it's really hot, and it's really good if it's really cold, and it's really bad if it's been sitting in a pot and it's lukewarm. It's no good, right? What is he saying here? He's saying, you're, you're not all in. Because you've been making these compromises. And the reason I stopped for a moment just to, to belabor this is that I want you to see that each of these seven churches that was picked was under attack from the adversary. And church, we will be under attack from the adversary. And the adversary doesn't care if he pulls you out of the game with Jesus through casual indifference, through being half-hearted in your spiritual life, through open immorality and rejection of him. He doesn't care if it's, it's, it's open or it's passive. He just wants to take you out of the game. So notice what he says here, verse 16, the church in Laodicea, or 18 rather. says, I advise you to buy from me, oops, verse 17 is where I want to start, because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may, be, may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. He says, church, I want you to be all in. Okay, all in. Don't compromise with sin. Jesus says, I am committed to your good. Keep reading verse 19. Jesus says, those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Those whom I love, I actually discipline. Now, I'm going to show you a couple of images, and I want you to just think for a moment. What, what, what immediately comes to your heart and mind when you see uh, these images? If you're like me, I go, ooh. <laughs> that tells me I should go down that cliff, right? I mean, there's, I, I will... <laughs> I, I want to acknowledge Romans 7 is very much alive in me, right? I, I mean, I see a door that says, you know, no admittance, like this is staff only. I go, okay, there must be something really, really good behind that door. And I see a sign like this. I go, oh, that looks like something to be really, really cool and fun to climb down. And, you know, that guy falling on his head, that doesn't, that doesn't warn me off at all. Now, you may not be like me. You may go, oh, gosh, step back. I don't know. 
Maybe I'm the only Romans 7 one here, but that's what I feel. Now, how about this, this time? Yeah, that one made me back up, right? Um, that's, uh, that's in the Golan Heights on the border between Israel and Syria. And when I saw that sign, I didn't actually even get any closer, right? I mean, if I, can, I can read that one from a distance, and I go, oh, now that, that's serious. Right, you, could, you could lose your life. You could be maimed. I didn't, I didn't want to step over. I didn't want to get close. What Jesus does for the church when he warns us against sin is not to make our lives miserable, not so that you'll miss out on something good. It's to protect you because sin is always destructive, right? I love the, I love the, the, the metaphor in Proverbs chapter 8 where wisdom is pictured as this beautiful woman who's alongside the Lord in creation. And she says, I was there. I was there when he made the stars. I was there when he made the sea. I was there when he made the creatures in the deep. I was alongside him like a master workman. And the image is this, that when God was weaving the, the, the universe together, the threads that he chose were, were wisdom. In other words, this is the way life works. It works God's way. It works, it works in righteousness, and it doesn't work in sin. And so what does God do? God warns us. God, God reproves us. God disciplines us. Why? So that he can make our lives rich and full and satisfying and good because he wants the best for us. He is for our good. He's not against us. So in Hebrews chapter 12, the writer says this, all discipline or training for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, right? None of us said to our parents when they're disciplining us, thank you, we never said it. But then afterwards when we realize, I said, help move me to to maturity so that my life could be full and rich, we realized, no, there, there was something beautiful that was a gift from my parents that their training, their discipline brought into my life. And the writer says, you know, earthly parents, they discipline us for a short time as seen best to them, but he disciplines us for our good. He knows what we need. Well, Jesus says, I see you. I see your faithfulness. I see the sin in your life. I'm going to confront it. I'm going to challenge it. I'm going to warn you. Why? Because sin is destructive. And I want what's best for you. Jesus says, renew your devotion, therefore, to me. Chapter 2, verse 4. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Chapter 3, verse 2. Wake up. Strengthen the things which remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard and keep it and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief and you will not know at what hour I will come. Wake up, right? Wake up. When Jesus was uh, praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, he pulled his three disciples aside and he said, not only do you, I want you to pray, I want you to stay awake because you won't pray if you don't stay awake. So he says, watch and pray. Watch and pray. Literally, same word he uses here. Stay alert. Pay attention. The adversary wants to destroy your life. He wants to take you out of the game. He wants to, to raise up affections that compete with me. So I want you to pay attention to this. Listen. Listen and repent. That is literally in Greek. Change your mind about what you think brings life and consequently change your behavior. Let it all be aligned with your love for me. And notice how he ends every single letter to each church. Chapter 3, verse 6. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. 
Chapter 3, verse 13, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Chapter 3, verse 22, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That is, the message wasn't just for that particular church. It was for all of the churches. And he says, wake up, pay attention, repent. Don't miss out. Don't miss out. Then finally, Jesus says, remember my promises. Hey, remember my promises. Jesus gives them a motivation for all of this. It's really, really good parenting. He gives them a, he gives them a prize. He gives them something to, to hope for in the end. I will confess to you, um, you know, as my kids have gotten older, I reflect on my parenting, and I look back and I say, I didn't stink. You know, I didn't think. I, I know I wasn't the best parent, but I wasn't terrible. I wasn't a terrible parent. So, you know, when they complain about my parenting, I go, yeah, you could have done worse. Right? I wasn't terrible. Right? But I look back, I go, you know, I think I probably, I probably give myself a solid B. I think I was a B. I was a, I was a good parent. I wasn't a great parent. I had, I had my moments where I was A plus. Right, man? I was just, I was nailing it. And again, I'd look at Tristan and go, huh? <laughs> That's good parenting right there. Uh, yeah, I'll put that a chapter in my book on parenting. And then I had moments where I was, I was, a, I was a D, D minus, right? It was like, yeah, man, I just really, I lost it. I was not in that moment. Because parenting is super hard. Because it feels like the rules of the game are always changing. You know, you have, each kid is unique, and, and what, what leverage is going to work on each kid at each time. And sometimes it's you give them consequences, and sometimes you want to give them prize and something hopeful. And so you're, it feels like you're always moving around. So, you know, one little technique Kids are throwing a tantrum. There's ah, and they're crying, they're fussing. It's like, okay, go to your room. Go to your room and cry. No, I mean it like really, go to your room and cry. I'm gonna set the timer and you have to cry for 10 minutes solid. If you don't cry 10 minutes solid, you don't get to come out of your room. So I'm gonna be timing, I'm gonna be listening that you cry all 10 minutes. So go to your room and cry. You wanna cry? Go cry, right? And I don't know, you might say, well, that's a D moment. I'd say that was an A-plus moment, right? Go <laughs> to your room and just cry, because you know what? Crying for 10 minutes is hard, right? By the end, they're exhausted, and they crawl out and go, I'm sorry for crying. <laughs> they're just totally worn out, right? But you might say, oh, that wasn't your best moment. I, you know, I really did prefer to give the carrot, not the stick, right? If you don't cry, we're going to go get ice cream. Mm. Those were, that, that's more fun. So, in each of these letters, every single one of them ends with hope. It ends with a promise. Read with me, verse 7, chapter 2. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. I don't think this is for believers just who are always faithful. I think this is for all. He's reminding Christians, this is what you have to, to live for. This is what you have to hope for. Jesus has overcome, and if you believed in him, you share in his overcoming. What, what I have to offer you is far better than what the world has to offer you. Verse 11, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He who overcomes will by no means be hurt by the second death, right? No matter what you're suffering right now, you will be raised again. The second death will not touch you. Verse seven, 17, chapter two, he has an ear to hear. Let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna. I think that is 
Jesus. The manna is hidden. Jesus is the bread of life, and he's still in heaven. But you will have the hidden manna, and I will give to him a white stone and a new name written on the stone, which no one knows but he who receives it. What is that? I don't know what that is. I don't know that, but just imagine Jesus giving you a nickname. That's pretty cool. Verse 26, chapter 2. He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds unto the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as the vessels of the potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. Who's the morning star? Chapter 22, verse 16. That's Jesus. It's intimacy of relationship with Jesus, ruling and reigning with Jesus. Chapter 3, verse 5. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not by any means erase his name from the book of life, and I will confess his name. I will proclaim it before my Father and before all of the angels. Mine, 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 mine. Man, can you imagine that kind of affirmation? Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven and from, from my God. And I will write on him my new name. Chapter 3, verse 21. He who overcomes, I will grant him to sit down with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He was near, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, how do we personalize this? Um, I'd love for you to put a little thought this week into uh, what Jesus would say to you, right? If Jesus were sitting down and Jesus were writing a letter carefully to you personally, what would he say? Word of encouragement. I see you. I see your faithfulness. Word of challenge, rebuke. Uh, we need to work on that. Warning. Sin has consequences. Would it be a promise? Oh, all that I have in store for you is so much better than what you think is good now. What would he say to you? Um, I suspect that uh, a lot of you were raised in homes where you didn't actually get lots of encouragement and praise. Um, I've noticed that in the course of, of my, my uh, job as a pastor. And so probably as we're reading through that, what really stuck with you is maybe the, the negative, the consequences. Right? But I, I want you to remember that uh, the Father of lights with whom there's no variation or shifting shadow loves to give good gifts to his children. And so every letter ends with hope. Every letter ends with a promise. And I want to remind you, you showed up today. Okay, that means you're still in the game. You showed up. You're still in the game. And Jesus sees that and he knows that. And so he's hopeful for you. So I think maybe the word would be chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. Which is actually not a gospel verse. It's a fellowship verse. Jesus is saying, you showed up and I'm tapping at the door. And I'm, I'm trying to say a message to the door. Will you open it up so I can come in and we, we can share a meal together and we can be, we can be back in intimate fellowship again with one another. I think that's what Jesus would say. Now, if you have never actually opened the door, if you're not sure where your relationship is with Jesus this morning, uh, let me remind you that he is seeking after you. That he made you. He knows you. He knows everything about you. He knows uh, every failure in your life, every fault 
and yet he still loves you, and that's why he hung on a cross, to, to die to pay the penalty for your sin so that you could have better life now, but life that lasts forever for all of eternity. And all that he's asking from you is not that you work harder and try and be a better person. Instead, that you simply say to Jesus, yes, thank you. Thank you. I believe, I accept. The moment you do that, your debt of sin is removed forever and you have life that lasts forever for all of eternity. So let me encourage you, if you've never done that today, that you do that. Uh, as we close, we're actually going to celebrate uh, communion together, which reminds us of that gospel message. So um, we're going to wait till everyone is served. If you didn't get a cup on the way in, if you could please uh, raise your hand. Our servers are moving around and they will hand you a cup. So we'll wait until everyone is served. And I'm, gonna, I'm raising my hand. I didn't get one. Can I have one? Oh, thanks, Sarah. All right, I'm covered. I see one right back here, middle-ish. Okay, a little higher so they can see. down here. Okay, why don't you just take a minute to peel things back. So on the night that Jesus was uh, betrayed by one of his friends who had shared meals with him for three years, uh, during that meal he, he took bread and he, he broke the bread in front of him um, and uh, he gave new significance to every time they shared a meal together. He said, when you break this bread, I want you to understand that uh, the bread represents my body broken for you. I'm, I'm going to suffer on your behalf so that your debt of sin can be removed. So every time you break that bread, I want you to think of me and I want you to remember my suffering because of your sin. Let's take the bread together. And then Jesus took a cup, final cup of their meal, and he said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. New covenant uh, being the covenant that would remove your debt of sins completely. So I will not just suffer physically, but I'll suffer even to the point of death so that your debt of sin can be removed. And every time you take that cup, I want you to think of that and remember me and be grateful. Let's take the cup together. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you that Jesus speaks. We thank you that Jesus um, is, is present with us. We thank you that Jesus not only removed our debt of sin, but he continues to guide us, direct us, protect us from sin. I pray, Father, that this week in particular, our hearts will be open, very open to whatever word it is that Jesus wants to speak to us. And I pray that we would courageously say yes. I pray that we would turn away from idolatry and immorality and indifference and all the sin that is creeping, maybe creeping into our lives and causing us to compromise 
instead of putting Jesus first and foremost and exclusive and making him the great love of our lives. Father, I pray that uh, this week would be a week in which our lives are, are rearranged and reordered around Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen.